2: and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only program from RNZ Sport, called the Nisgarland Pene. In the program this week, the All Blacks attempt to bounce back from their historic loss to Ireland. Joseph Parker secures a hometown advantage for his world heavyweight title fight. The Black Caps make several changes for their upcoming test against Pakistan, while New Zealand cricket admits it's failed the women's game. The All-Whites face New Caledonia on their road to the 2018 Football World Cup in Russia. Cycling New Zealand's high-performance director Mark Elliott steps down after almost a decade in the job. And former rugby league bad boy Sione Whamuina details his struggles during his time in the game. The All Blacks' 111-year unbeaten run against Ireland is over, as is their record-breaking winning streak. So how will the world champions bounce back in this weekend's test against Italy in Rome? As rugby reporter Joe Porter reports, the Italians are likely to cop an almighty backlash from an All Black side seeking to re-stamp their dominance.
3: The mighty All Blacks! felled by Ireland for the first time in history. It's taken 111 years, 29 meetings, and so much heartache. Italy will have taken inspiration from Ireland's first ever win over the All Blacks, and the British and Irish Lions coach Warren Gatlin says the historic triumph will have breathed hope into the rest of Europe.
4: I think from everyone's point of view, you know, everyone goes, oh, I mean, these guys are human, you know, they can, they're like everyone, and you can... As coaches, you try and deliver that message sometimes to say, look, they, you know, look, it's like any team, you put them under pressure, they can make mistakes.
3: In reality, though, the Irish have done the Italians no favours. The All Blacks are determined to atone, and coach Steve Hanson says they have a history of following rare losses with big wins.
5: That's been the case in the past, so you know the challenge for this group now is uh, to be able to do that, You know, get themselves up off the floor and have a good look in the mirror at ourselves, you know, coaches included, and what can we do that uh, we didn't do, that we didn't do right, and, and front up against Italy.
3: Many pundits claimed Ireland's success against the All Blacks came from copying the world champions. However, the Italy coach, former Ireland international Connor O'Shea, says the Azuri will stick to their own game.
6: There's a lot of good players here, but... Looking forward to just changing slightly the way we play. We're not going to be stupid. We will cut our cloth. There is no point us taking on the All Blacks playing like the All Blacks. We'll lose by a lot, so we'll play a game that suits us.
3: So can a classic Italian performance upset the All Blacks on Sunday? It hasn't happened in 29 years of trying, and that record shouldn't change. The Māori All Blacks are also in action this weekend. They take on Munster and Limerick, who until last week were the only Irish side to have beaten New Zealand. Coach Colin Cooper says the Māori are weary of a Munster side whose mana will be buoyed by Ireland's historic win.
7: The stadium's sold out, and you know, Ireland beating the All Blacks in the weekend, so it's got everyone uh, pretty hummed up here, and it'll be a mighty contest
3: and a mighty battle for us. That match should prove a much closer affair than the All Blacks' Italian job.
2: Joe Porter reporting. The New Zealand boxer Joseph Parker will have hometown advantage for next month's world heavyweight title fight against Mexican-American Andy Ruiz. Auckland's Vector Arena will host the World Boxing Organisation bout on December 10th. after Parker's promoters Duco announced this week that they've managed to fund the fight here after weeks of uncertainty. The WBO fight is the biggest boxing fixture to ever be held in New Zealand, But as Matt Chatterton reports, Parker's former manager Sir Bob Jones has rubbished claims the heavyweight is fighting for a world title.
1: Joseph Parker's upcoming fight for the WBO world title will be his most important one to date. So far the 24-year-old is undefeated in his 21 fights, while Ruiz, three years his senior, has won all of his 29 bouts. The fight has been touted as New Zealand's biggest boxing event since David Tua's unsuccessful world heavyweight title fight against Lennox Lewis. But Parker's former manager, Sir Bob Jones, disagrees. He says it's a rort to call it a world title fight.
6: All these outfits purport by their name, they have annual conferences to try and give themselves some sort of a thing. You can't have, imagine if there were seven Olympic committees running seven different Olympic games with seven different Olympic champions in every event. Well, that's the exact situation you've got now. It's destroyed championship boxing.
1: Parker's promoter's JUCO events have spent the last month trying to secure the fight in Auckland and were close to losing it to Ruiz's home country America when financial backing from the government and Auckland Council's events agency ATEED, fell through. JUCO Chief Executive Martin Sneddon says his company is prepared to take a financial loss in order to give Parker hometown advantage.
6: There is a significant <laughs> financial risk to us but there's also a risk that if we allowed this opportunity to slip through our fingers And we didn't give Joseph the home advantage because in any sport you play, the home advantage is something to be treasured and is something that statistically will tell you is so effective.
1: The chance for this fight came about after British heavyweight Tyson Fury was stripped of his WBA and WBO world titles after failing to defend them against former champion Vladimir Klitschko. Sir Bob Jones says those two boxers should be considered world champions, not Parker or his opponent, Andy Ruiz.
6: The Mexican, who is not even the best Mexican heavyweight, hasn't fought anyone, I think, in the top 50. And you try to tell me these two are fighting for the vacant world heavyweight title.
1: <laughs> Jones says he would be willing to pay no more than $15 to watch the fight on Sky's pay-per-view system, the only way New Zealanders will be able to watch the fight at home. But in reality, the cost will be more than $50. Tickets for the fight go on sale this week.
2: Matt Chatterton with that report. The underperforming opener Martin Guptill has been dropped from the New Zealand cricket side for their two-test series against Pakistan. He's one of several changes made by selectors for the home series, with Doug Bracewell, Jeetan Patel, Luke Ronke and Ish Sodhi also dropped from the test side that suffered a series whitewash against India. The uncapped Auckland batsman Jeet Raval replaces Gupdal as the opener, while teammate Colin de Grandholm is also in line to make his debut during the series. The one-test Canterbury spinner Todd Astle has earned a recall to the squad in place of the injured Mitchell Santner four years after making his debut. Astle told our sports reporter Stephen Hewson he's dug out his black cap and is excited to play with the silver fern on his chest once again.
4: It's been a wee while, but I suppose in a way it's meant that I've gone away and and put together some really good performances and feel really pleased with this call-up now and, and hopefully can just continue on with the, the things that have been going really well for me and, and those simple recipes.
6: How different are you as a, as a bowler or a player, do you think, from four years ago?
4: I think a lot more mature in terms of understanding my own game and bowling and being able to adjust and adapt a bit more in terms of different conditions and players and, and just trying to, I guess, be a bit more tactical in, in how you're getting players out and a bit more street smart.
6: So does that mean being aware of what you're able to do and what you're not able to do?
4: I think you're just always trying to be versatile in what role you play, whether it's the first innings more of a holding role or you know, more attacking if the ball is turning and trying to just work within the game situations and still be consistent in whatever you're doing, whether it's you know, with the ball or in the bat and, and offering a lot more uh, as a leader, I guess, in, in teams as well, having played a number of first-class seasons now.
6: I mean, it must have been disappointing just getting that one opportunity. What were your thoughts maybe at the time and subsequently as to to whether Test cricket had passed you by?
4: Yeah, look, at the time, it was such an amazing experience to play that one Test and win that game and then to come back, and and I look back now, not having played for four years, it was, yeah, at the time, probably a little bit surprising, but then we had home series and other people were picked and, and lack of form, those sorts of things. You just have to... I guess, take it on the chin, and that's where I've been a little bit more perspective of, of the last few seasons, and you just go away and try and contribute every time you're playing and try and be as consistent as possible, and that's, I guess, allowed me to have success with Canterbury and, and all three format, and, yeah, earned my recall now, which is, you know, just an amazing feeling.
6: Well, yeah, you're certainly in some good domestic form, aren't you? You must be very happy.
4: Yeah, nice to start the season off with a hiss and a roar, and hopefully you can just keep continuing that and... and yeah, like I said earlier, that, that simple recipes of just going out there and enjoying it, but trying to be consistent and have a tactical mindset when I bowl in terms of plans and getting guys out, that's where I'm at my best.
6: So are you going to have to dust off the black cap? Do you have to hook it out, or is it on display somewhere? What's the the story yep, with no, that? Yeah,
4: it's, uh, it's all there ready to go, so it still fits, thankfully.
6: You've tried it on.
4: Yeah, looking forward to uh, yeah, donning it again.
6: And the other thing, too, it seems like you're going to get a, get a start from the comments that uh, Gavin Larson has made. He, it seems pretty much just say, saying you're a straight switch for you to, to Mitchell Santner at eight in the batting order.
5: Yeah,
4: hopefully. You never know until the day, but that's the way you've got to plan to play and do all that preparation, and hopefully that fairytale sort of home test happens, and then once, it, once you know, you're underway, you just get into it and enjoy the experience.
6: Yeah, I suppose that's another thing, isn't it? The Hagley Oval, that must be uh, quite a treat for you, for you to get to play a test there.
4: Yeah, it is. It's such an incredible venue and nice to have played there the last few years and, and just see it as such an amazing venue throughout that World Cup and then the test matches that have been there already and to be a part of one of those will be yeah, really unique.
6: And that's going to suit you? You sort of know it, know it well?
4: I think it, it's got to help. I mean, it's great to have friends and family there and, and having played a couple of first-class games of the season already on it. Yeah, you, you know inside out, and so it'll be nice to, to get out there and be wearing the silver fern on the chest and on the hat.
6: How, how do you anticipate it will play? Because, what, we're only a, a week out from, from the Test match.
4: It's usually a pretty good cricket wicket. I wouldn't be surprised if it looks um, a little bit green on top, but that's the way it usually can start out, and then it's usually pretty even between bat and ball come later in the, in the game, and hopefully it's uh, you know a good spectacle as they have been there over the last few years.
2: Todd Astle speaking with Stephen Hewson. The Black Caps' first test against Pakistan gets underway in Christchurch on Thursday. Meanwhile, a damning independent report on the state of women's cricket has forced New Zealand cricket to concede it's neglected the game. The Women in Cricket report, carried out by former Auckland representative Sarah Beeman, found the state of the women's game has deteriorated substantially since the early 1990s when the Women's Cricket Council amalgamated with New Zealand cricket. The findings have forced NZC into admitting that it hasn't done enough to support women. Its chief executive David White begins this report from Barry Guy. We're
3: putting our hands up and, said, and saying that it's not right. We've got to do something. Once they became a, a, amalgamated uh, for some reason there was just a decline and I think that the expectation was that women or the women's game should just fit under the, the men's game but it clearly hasn't worked.
8: David White admitting they'd dropped the ball. The report reveals only 10% of players in the sport are female and of those 90% are under 12 The women and cricket report carried out by Sarah Beeman, a former Auckland representative, has revealed the game's demise, with Beeman saying at times she thought she was studying an endangered species. It found over 90% of cricket clubs don't have female-only teams, while almost 60% of clubs don't offer cricket for girls at all. White says for a long time the women's game was seen as a cost to the business. He admits they have to look at the governance as well as the numbers and the type of game girls and women want to play.
3: One of the problems we've got at the moment is the traditional structure we've got is not what they want. <laughs> All our um, surveys are saying they want fast, they want fun, they want to be playing with themselves, the girls. Um, at the moment a lot, of the, a lot of the cricket is played with boys.
8: The author of the report, Sarah Beeman, says internationally sports are realising they must cater for women to survive.
4: In Australia, typically male-dominated sports call it now it's an arms race. It's actually about saying which of us can engage with females more and quicker because actually 82% of the females are the ones who make the purchasing decision. Women have a lot of power and, and potential, so I think that that's is going to be happening in New Zealand as well.
8: Sarah Beeman. The women's game certainly needs help in many parts of New Zealand. For instance, Wellington is struggling to get four competitive teams in the senior women's competition. 16-year-old Beth Maloney has only been playing for 3 years and says she got into the Wellington Girls College team straight away basically because they needed every player they could get. She since progressed through the grades and was due to debut in the senior competition last week but the opposition couldn't field a team. Beth is disappointed that very few people appear to know much about our top women's team, the White Ferns.
9: I was talking to my friend the other
4: day and she sort of she was saying like about the men's cricket and how they're doing and stuff, and I was sort of like, oh, yeah, the women are doing quite well as well. And she was like, she had no idea what was going on. Like, no one sort of, I don't think people know how to f- sort of follow them just because the men's is always on TV
2: and like you don't really see what's happening in the women's side.
8: Improving the profile of the women's game is something New Zealand cricket is keen to do.
2: Barry Guy reporting. And you're listening to Extra Time, a web only program from RNZ Sport. The All-Whites' road to the 2018 Football World Cup in Russia continues this weekend. New Zealand face New Caledonia at North Harbour Stadium in the first of two legs. The All-Whites are heavy favourites to defeat New Caledonia, aside they beat 1-0 in the semi-final of this year's Oceania Nations Cup. However, New Zealand will be without the experience of their captain, Winston Reid who's been ruled out with an injury he picked up in the English Premier League. Lead striker Chris Wood will take his place, while Wellington Phoenix veteran Andrew Durante will also be vocal from the back. Durante spoke to media about the importance of the match.
5: The preparation has been exactly the same uh, as we prepared in... Uh, in the States and we had a really good camp there so um, yeah look we're, we're ready to go and uh, very excited to be playing in front of our home crowd I guess the last tour there was a lot different style in terms of the Nations Cup what was played in the Nations Cup, what's it like playing at the back with that sort of high pressing style for you? Yeah it's good, it's enjoyable um, you know it's there's no time that we sit back and, and just let them have possession, we're going to be on the front foot and, and really put them under pressure and, and take the game to them and if we can win the ball higher up it'll create uh, goal scoring opportunities for us so that's the game plan that's what we'll try and execute on the night and uh, let's hope it's a, a special night for everyone
10: are you expecting New Kelly to struggle in these conditions given they're not you know as familiar perhaps as, as a lot of these guys are
5: um, look I think they're they're actually a very good team they, they're a you know, good footballing nation. They try to play a lot, so it's definitely not going to be easy. And, and we're not getting overconfident or anything. But um, you know, I think if we can stick to the game plan and everyone does their jobs really well, then you know we should be coming away with with a win. But um, yeah, definitely not underestimating them as they are quite a good footballing nation.
10: Dura has Anthony talked about your role within the team as one of the the older heads, I suppose?
5: Uh, yeah. Obviously, being uh, more experienced, um, you know, and, and having a young team, then yeah, my my role is. Just to make sure the standards are high and, and everyone know, understands their roles and, um, you know, I become a voice in the team, organising on the field, uh, making sure people are, are organised and disciplined. So, um, it's a natural part of my game, captain of the Phoenix, so it's it's nothing different for me. I, I naturally like to be loud and vocal, so, um, yeah, I'm enjoying it. I'm loving being back in the setup. It's It's been fantastic. Andrew,
4: Winston was in the States but not here. Does your role change
1: much with Winston? Not I'm not in the camp.
5: Ah... Uh, Not really, you know. Winston, Winston's a fantastic leader, and just him being around camp lifts everyone. Um, You know, I still do the same role as I did. I was still vocal over in the states, Um, still trying to organise everyone. So it's just a natural part of my game. Um, You know, Woods is a skipper for this for this tour, and he's also a great leader. So you know, we've got we've got a good enough squad and enough leaders in this team to to make sure we get the job done on Saturday.
2: The All Whites defender Andrew Giorante. After almost a decade at the helm of Cycling New Zealand's elite programme, high-performance director Mark Elliott has resigned. Elliott oversaw a disappointing return for New Zealand cyclists at the Rio Olympics, but says that's not been the trigger for his departure. While Rio didn't go well, Elliott's time with Cycling New Zealand has been successful, with New Zealand winning eight World Championship titles on the track and road during his involvement. Elliot spoke to Stephen Hewson about his time in the role.
7: The disappointment of Rio, you know, I, I'll be honest, it, it was a tough one, and, and not so much with uh, the results, but maybe more about knowing how how much potential we had in that program, and, and obviously uh, not fulfilling those expectations. And I guess the disappointment of Rio was, was sometimes it's uh, easy to reflect on. I was more making sure that uh, you know after Rio that you know there was real clear stability of, of the program for it to, to move forward, and. I think we're on that pathway now, and uh, and now it's time to move on. So yes, a disappointment, but also before that, you know, some amazing times and fantastic to know that we've won more uh, world titles in this uh, last few years than what we have in the history of the sport. So you know, there's some good things happening, and there'll be some good things for the sport to move on with.
6: That renaissance, I suppose, did that make Rio all the more disappointing?
7: Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, you know, you, you can't ever go into any major event with an expectation to perform. But we certainly had been showing consistency of performance. I think uh, we'd won world titles in every discipline that we were targeting in Rio um, the year before the Olympics. But I guess the key learning is that you get into that Olympic environment, and it's about stepping up again. And and that's the, the key learning is, is how much can you step up, and and how much is the the rest of the world uh, also stepping up. So. It's probably the disappointment, and it's exciting uh, at the same time, though, knowing that we've got some young riders who, who would have learned a lot from that Rio experience, and they'll be around for Tokyo.
6: Is there a f- feeling now that, that ever, ever more, that the Olympics are the absolute pinnacle? I mean, no matter what the performances might be in a World Championship year uh, prior to an Olympic, things are different when it when it gets to the Olympic Games themselves.
7: Yeah, I think there's um, a lot of sports revolving in that space that, you know, they, they um, sort of set themselves up more around, you know, four-year cycles and deliver in that Olympic phase. And, you know, we're still a young program. But it's, um, you know, we've only been, haven't even had three years in our new uh, beautiful velodrome here in Cambridge. And so it's very formative days for us still as a program. And I, I think some of the more senior... High-performance environments that we see out of the GB and, and the Australian programs have got that four-year cycle. We're, we're still looking to deliver and, and prove that we can deliver world titles, and I think that's you know one of the, the learnings of how you actually balance you know winning in the short term versus you know, delivering at that pinnacle event.
6: When you reflect on your time in this role, what springs to mind as particular highlights for you?
7: Well, a lot of the highlights are really seeing the development um, of riders coming through from you know winning junior world titles through to to winning Olympic medals and world titles, and. You know, the likes of Sam Webster and you know, Anton Cooper. I've been following them and working with them for a number of years. You know, Linda Williamson. Uh, probably a highlight for me was to um, you know, drive her program last year and for her to win that world title. And you know, they're all great, great memories. And but I think it is about seeing athletes reach their potential and, and creating environment for that, for them to do
6: that. You've mentioned there about the young program and the young age of the of the riders. What therefore has not kept you around to possibly see them develop for Tokyo?
7: Well, I think for every HP director, you know, you're in a role where you know you've got to make sure that you know, things are constantly evolving and changing. And, and I think now we've moved into this environment here. It's you know I've, I've set it up nicely to do that, but I think it is really time for for someone else to take that mantle. And you know, say nine years is is a long time in high performance sport to be in one role. So I think it's uh, you know the right step now to to do that.
6: Simply hear a different voice. Yeah, a little bit of
7: that. And and I think um, you know challenge maybe some of the. The models I've put in place, and and always um, you know look to evolve, and that's part of the business of sport. It's constantly you know, evolving and, and moving, so it's uh, important for us to reflect on that and and know that um, you know there's always going to be someone else there who can challenge people in a different way.
6: Does there need to be a major resetting of, of the program?
7: No, look, I'd be uh, really concerned if that was the case, um, because you know I think there's some great talent here, both from a sports science perspective, a coaching perspective, and, and the athletes, and say the. The depth we've got in, um, in, in particular in the track uh, program is phenomenal and you know, I don't think we've uh, seen that talent before in, in the history of the sport so it's exciting to know we've got an amazing facility here in Cambridge and it's just about making sure that journey continues to grow.
2: Mark Elliott told Stephen Hewson he's unsure what the future holds but it's likely to be in sport somehow. And the former New Zealand rugby league player Seone Thaumui has described the roller coaster of emotions he experienced during his turbulent nine-year professional career. Thaumui made his NRL debut for the Canberra Raiders in 2001 before he joined the New Zealand Warriors in 2002. He was released from the club four years later for repeated serious misconduct. He hit the headlines on a number of occasions during his time in Auckland for alcohol fueled violence, and he was unable to stay out of the papers during his two years with the North Queensland Cowboys and a short stint at the Castleford Tigers in England. The two-test Kiwis Ford has now given up alcohol, is coaching at a Brisbane rugby league club, and has published an autobiography, The Second Phase, detailing his struggles. He spoke to 9 to Noon's Catherine Ryan about his experiences, starting from when he joined the Canberra Raiders as a 19-year-old.
10: The first time I had moved away from family, at night I'd go to sleep in my room just staring at the ceiling, just thinking to myself, well, you know, what am I actually doing here? You know, I'm really lonely, getting homesick. There wasn't much support around me at the time, and the way that I dealt with that was obviously through drinking, and uh, I did a lot of it in my time in Canberra.
9: We're talking serious, serious drinking here, and it keeps rearing its head throughout your career. We're not even just talking about a young guy hitting the booze. The way you went about your drinking was was almost professional in its own right. Did, Did you realize from the start that it was beyond something you could manage or did did you just go with the flow
10: yeah I, I just went with the flow you know I'd started drinking from about 16 years of age so as I got older my consumption increased so by the time I got to Canberra it went up another level but I was surrounded by you know that rugby league culture especially in Australia where it was almost as if it was accepted. The way that i was drinking um there wasn't too many people pulling up other players that were you know going a, a bit off the rails on the drink so for me at the time i thought that that's how you know footy players drunk so it wasn't until i got a bit of exposure when i come back to the warriors got a bit of media attention due to my my football ability that i started to realize like man maybe this isn't the way you're supposed to get on the drink
9: There were good days and bad days at the Warriors. Uh, You know, 2003, was this the year also um, that the Aussies got their backsides kicked? 2003 was a really good year.
10: That was my third year playing in the NRL. So for the first two years of my career, I didn't really stamp my authority on the game. So I was in and out of first grade. 2003 was the year that I guess you could say that I came onto the scene. I debuted for the Kiwis that year. I played some really good football. Getting all that attention around me at the time. It was good. When everything's going well, um, you know, I was happy. In Rolls 2004, and an off-field incident occurred, and that's when my sort of world turned upside down.
9: A couple of things are happening here. You're getting into a relationship with a with a very, very high-profile netballer, mm-hmm. and that certainly has its ups and downs. But also we see this pattern, of, and you've alluded to it, of incidents where, again, with the booze involved, it seems stuff happens, there's a car crash in one instance, there's episodes that you don't even seem to be able to remember where people have told you you've punched someone what was it that happened that really registered? It
10: would have to be that that first incident down in um, Whakatane after that incident I, I can't remember what happened and it wasn't until I started back at training after Christmas and New Year that I was called into the office and, and told that apparently this is what's happened and I, I honestly told the club I, I can't remember and Sitting there, they were telling me what to say in front of the media because obviously the media had got wind of it. And uh, one of the things they told me to say was come out, apologize and say that you'll never drink again. That was probably the biggest mistake and the worst advice I got because obviously I didn't stop drinking. And uh, I was only off to drink for a few weeks and then I was back on it. And then another incident occurred at an ATM, which was also publicized.
9: There's another stint in Aussie. There's a stint in the UK. There's an incident in Brisbane before you u- leave for the UK. But mm-hmm. even once you get to the UK, I think there's, there's an issue there immediately as well. You can't get away from the problems. We should say that you've come a hell of a long way, but you're brutally honest in this book. And there's a day, isn't there, mm-hmm. where someone says to you, what's more important to you?
10: What happened was I was out um, with a friend in Brisbane. I got into an altercation at, at a nightclub. My eldest daughter, her mother, it was actually one of her best friends who happened to be there that night and she witnessed the altercation. So by this point, we were going on about three years in and out of family court and she kept using my off-field incidents during my career and the fact that I was still drinking against me whenever we'd have to show up in front of the judge. This incident obviously got back to her and my lawyer, she laid it all out. She said, look, we're going on three years, we're in and out of family court, you're spending all this money, and this happens, so you need to make a decision, you know, do you love your daughter or do you love alcohol? And when she put it like that, for some reason, it just clicked in my head, and um, from that day, I haven't touched a drop.
9: There's one telling, well, there's many telling lines in this book, (coughs) Sione, but there's one that I noted down because it's got so much relevance to the situations that codes still find themselves in today. I was young, naive, and felt bulletproof, whereas in reality I was an immature kid with no self-control. Unfortunately, this very much describes many of the young players today. They just keep rolling off the production line doing the same shit I did, which is the same shit the players before me did, which is probably going to be the same shit the next crop of players will do. How do we stop this?
10: I think we need to educate our up-and-coming players. NRL clubs, they identify these boys at, a, at such a young age, 13, 14 years of age, as soon as they have that identification of this talent, that's when the process needs to start. The NRL is doing a great job around this um, in terms of player welfare and education, but they're mainly focusing on the elite players and then also the under-20s. I think we need to go a few steps back and look at the grassroots a bit more and really getting something in place for the 14, 15-year-old boys and, and getting them young.
2: Si on we na speaking with Catherine Ryan. And that's extra time for this week. You can follow us on Twitter at RNZ Sport. I'm Denise Garland, Kakete
0: Anor. Botox Cosmetic, of Botulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.